If you uh, weren't here last week, you missed the destruction of the world. <laughs> Genesis chapter 7 ends, verse 17 through 24, it says, For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters arose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heaven were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. And we talked about that's the ha- half the depth of the ark, so they weren't hitting anything in the bottom. Verse 21, every living thing that moved on the land perished, birds, livestock, wild animals, all creatures that swarmed over the earth, and all mankind, everything on dry land that had breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and creatures that moved along the ground and the birds were wiped from the face of the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. And the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. In chapter 8, verse 1, But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. And that word for wind is, is the same as spirit. Same word that was used to part the Red Sea, that wind that went over the waters. Trials. How many of you enjoy trials? How many of you signed up for the 40-day boat ride, and it turned out to be 150? <laughs> Anyone? And actually 374. Not very fun on, on, on my scale. God's timing is not always our timing. Uh, when it says that God remembered Noah and the rest, it wasn't that God had forgotten him. This is obviously from Noah's perspective. And God remembered me. Praise God that he remembers us in our trials. God was aware of every single moment, every single aspect, every single problem, perceived problem from Noah's, Noah's perspective. The ark which he was trapped in couldn't get out of it. Anybody been in a trial? Now, obviously, this is God's method of deliverance for him. And we see the ark as Christ. But how many of us in our journey with Christ, it feels like, gosh, if I could just get out there, if I could just get out of this thing for a little while, there'd be so much better on the other side. But actually, there's death all around us. And the safest place for us to be is in Christ. And this ark is a picture of that, but it also is a picture of trials. Forty, the number 40 is the number for trials in the Bible. And so 40 days it rained, 40 nights it rained, and he's just waiting and waiting and waiting. And that's what he signed up for, but guess what? The water did not recede as soon as it was done. Fountains were broken up, the deep was broken up, water was coming from both directions, took a long time for this flood to recede. Noah had to wait upon God for what God had planned in God's time. Walking by faith can be difficult. Noah had built a boat. He got in the boat, waited seven days, nothing happened. God sealed the door. He got in 40 days, 40 nights. Now 150 days. A lot of, a lot of fun in there. I'm sure it smelled great. You know, they were able to watch their flat screens. Nothing going on. You know, it will quite often go, when we walk in faith, 
when we obey the Lord, it'll quite often go against how we feel. It'll go against our comfort. It'll go against everything that was within us. It'll be very uncomfortable at times. But like Peter said, where else can we go for you alone have the words of life? Where else can we go? We're committed to this, Lord. We're committed into your hands. Though he slay me, Job would say. And that's the kind of people, that's the kind of person that Noah was. Noah had to wait upon God for his plan to work out. And so verse 2 says, Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heaven had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky, and the water receded steadily, steadily from the earth. And at the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark had came to rest on the Mount Ararat. And I had pointed out last week, uh, we spoke of the significance of that day, that the 17th day of the seventh month was the pre-anniversary of the day that Christ was resurrected from the dead. And so Noah began his, his new journey of hope on the same day that Christ was resurrected from the dead in the future. God does these things. Uh, verse 5, the, water, the waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Hooray! And after 40 days, Noah opened up a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven. And it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. And then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could, not, could uh, find nowhere to perch because there was water over the surface of the earth. And so it returned to Noah in the ark, and he reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. There's probably some significance there, but um, I think the main idea is a raven is a pretty hardy bird, can fly around for a long time. And the dove is not so much. And so if I'm looking to survive on the outside, I want to make sure a dove can survive. Um, Verse 10, he waited seven more days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. And when the dove returned to him in the evening, there was in its beak was a freshly plucked, plucked olive leaf. And then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth, and he waited seven more days and sent a dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. And so the olive branch you know, that we know of is, is, is a symbol of peace and restoration. That's kind of how we get that, that olive uh, branch inside of a, of a beak. And verse 13 says, Now by the, by the first day of the first month of Noah's 600 uh, in first year, the water had dried up from the earth, and Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. And by the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Now, Noah's obviously having nothing else to do, so he's documenting all the days and the times and what he's doing. If I were Noah, I would be out of the boat. Get me out of here. <laughs> we're having, like, you know, family troubles in here. <laughs> But he wasn't going anywhere until God said. He was testing the waters around. He was looking to see, uh, getting a sense of the timing. But he wasn't going to move until God said, go. That is a man of faith. To even where you can have freedom, you don't do it until the Lord says, go. When we're in our trials, when we're in our testing, Quite often, we want to find a way of escape that might be premature, for God hasn't prepared the environment around us for what He wants to do through us and in us and in others. It's difficult to wait. It's difficult to wait for the voice of the Lord and to know how to hear the voice of the Lord. 
But it says in verse 15, then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives and bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground. So then, I'm sorry, though they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase a number on it. Verse 18, so Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his son's wives, and all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moved on the land came out of the ark, one kind after another. Verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord, taking some of the clean, uh, taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, and he sacrificed a burnt offering to it. Uh, to, on it, sorry. Uh, the first action that Noah has is he gets goes into his new life when he comes out of the trial is sacrifice, is worship. How many of us, when we are done with our trials, immediately go, okay, God, that was fun. See you later. <laughs> Through this whole thing, his heart was, had a gratitude towards him, uh, towards the Lord. He was thankful, and it was reflected in his actions. It was reflected in what he did. The nature of sacrifice is that it costs us something. That it costs us something. That is what sacrifice is. Noah's resources were limited. His future was uncertain from a human perspective. Instincts would be for him to hold on tightly to everything he had. Perhaps the sacrificing of these birds would be the extinction of a species. But Noah's action reflected his heart. What were his priorities? His first act in his new life was sacrifice, to worship God. And King David, when purchasing the threshing floor um, from Aranua, which would eventually be the foundation for the new temple that his son would build, he was, this, he was told, King David was told, just have it. You can have it. We want to give it to you. King David replies in First Chronicles 21, 24, and also in Second Samuel, he says, but King David replied and said, no, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. When is the last time, and I'm asking this myself, Matt, you sacrificed to the Lord something of value? It reflects our hearts, brothers and sisters. This isn't an issue of salvation. This is an issue of worship and response. Are we living a life based on fear? Fear of what might happen if we let go. Fear of what might happen if we give. And I'm talking every area of our lives, friends. I'm not, you know, preaching at, you know, just give us all your money and all that stuff. But I mean, seriously, it reflects your heart. It reflects my heart. Time is precious in our culture. We're willing to sacrifice for certain things, but when it comes to the things of God, what about those things? Our money. I mean, these are the things that reflect, that show. If I give, then I won't have these fears, limited resources. And I'm not saying this to manipulate you. This is between you and the Lord, obviously. But I want to show this first thing. When he comes off the trial, there's, there's, a, there's something going on in his heart. I want to give. And it just flowed from who he was, and it showed who he was. Living a life of faith, 
is not living in fear, but trusting the Lord that he will provide, trusting that he, what he says about what he does will come true, attest God in those things and watch his mighty hand. And then the Lord smelled pleasing aroma, the, the pleasing aroma, and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all the living creatures as I have done. And as long as the earth endures, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And so the sacrifice was pleasing to the Lord. It was pleasing to the Lord. And out of this, this, uh, this communion, God reveals uh, his, his heart and his will to, uh, to Noah. And so God promises never again to destroy all living creatures as he has done. And he clarifies what he means in a few verses because you've got to read the details, the fine print with God. It's very important. In chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and multiply and increase in, the num- in number and fill the earth. That same phrase he gave to Adam and Eve. I want you to, uh, husbands and wives, go have kids, fill the earth. And this idea it was, was, uh, was God's from the beginning, that man and woman would have kids and populate the earth with people who reflected God. And this is important as we get to chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel where men stopped doing that. They stopped going over the earth and they congregated in one place. And so we'll get to that uh, next week. But verse 2 of chapter 10, it says, uh, the, the fear of the dread of you will fall on every beast of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands and everything that lives and moves uh, about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I am now giving you everything. And we really have a limited knowledge of what the earth was like pre-flood. They call it prehistory, uh, antediluvial, whatever that word is. But uh, for those of you who want to have fun with that, go ahead. But did humans have access to multiple dimensions before the flood? How was it that, God, that man communed, communed with God? It seems like it was something different than what we had we have now, you know, um, was there more contact, was there an easier contact with the spirit world? Uh, there was most likely a global cl- climate. You see that woolly mammoths are frozen, flash frozen, in, you know, underneath the ice and the tundra, and they have uh, vegetation in their mouths still, and that would take like negative 140 degrees for that to happen. I mean, scientists are baffled by these things. Something crazy happened to our earth. Something uh, catastrophic happened to our earth for these changes to come about. The geography is obviously different. The rain cycles, from what was des- described in Genesis, there was a canopy over the earth. That canopy is no longer. Is the pressure different? Our atmospheric pressure, who knows all these things? Animals were approachable. We were vegetarians. A lot different world, and here Noah wakes up to this new world a very different world than what he had known. There's a different place altogether. And we can get a glimpse of what it was looking at, what it originally looked like by looking at Revelation as God restores all things. But still we see through a glass dimly. 
But God makes some serious changes so that mankind and animals can have a, uh, have a fight here, have, have a survive, you know, be able to survive. And now animals would be fearful of humans. My cat, I just, I tell you, I love that thing and, and I pet it and it just like, eh, it runs away and what in the world is up with that? It drives me crazy. It's like, don't you know I'm not going to hurt you? No, I don't because I have a fear of man. It's strange. And then often, then often animals get pretty familiar with us and they end up biting us. I think it's interesting that we can, you know, they can train tigers for years and years and then eventually they get, they maul, they just, it kicks back in. But so animals are, are, you know, are now fearful of humans. Wouldn't that be great if they weren't? I mean, not from a predator standpoint, but from a cohabitation standpoint. Now man is no longer a herbivore, but is now an omnivore. God makes a general statement about all things being food for man, and obviously it doesn't mean we can eat every single thing out there. God qualifies that and later talks about it, and he'll get talk about blood here in just a second. But the Bible often makes general statements and then clarifies them. Obviously, you don't eat all plants, all fish, all animals. Don't go chewing on tree bark forever, you know what I mean? It's a general statement. And one of the clarifications God immediately makes in this verse, and it's very important for us today, is verse 4. says, but you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it still. The digestion of blood is a no-no for all mankind. We are not to drink and eat blood. This is something that's, that God lays out clearly in Scripture. This is pre-Mosaic uh, law. This is for all mankind. The importance of the idea of, of blood in the Bible is shown by how often it's used. That word is used. It's used 424 times in 357 different verses in the New King James Version, for example. Blood was the sign of mercy for Israel on the first Passover. That's Exodus 12. Blood seals God's covenant with Israel, Exodus 24.8. Blood sanctifies the, sanctified the altar, Exodus 29.12. Blood set aside the priests, Exodus 29.20. Blood made atonement for God's people, Exodus 30.10. Blood sealed the new covenant, Matthew 26.28. Blood justifies us, Romans 5.9. Blood brings us redemption, Ephesians 1.7. Blood brings peace with God. Colossians 1.20, blood cleanses us. Hebrews 9.14 and 1 John 1.7, blood gives entrance to God's holy place. Hebrews 10.19, blood sanctifies us. Hebrews 13.12, blood enables us to overcome Satan. Revelation 12.11, the only blood that God intends for humans to ingest is the blood of Christ. There's a spiritual picture here that God is getting at. It's because of this commandment that God gave Noah not to drink blood, that many of the disciples stopped following Christ. Remember in John 6, Jesus said to them, Very truly, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up in the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink, and whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. And he goes on. But in verse 59, he says, of, of John chapter 6, he said, while teaching in the synagogue, he said this in t- while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, so this was a church service, and he, and he heard it. And on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? 
You're telling us to eat your flesh and drink your blood. We're not supposed to be doing that stuff. And aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray betray him. And he went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father enables them. In verse 66, John 6, 6, 6 says, From that time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And so the ultimate significance is that lifeblood, that life is found in the blood, eternal life is found in the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't want us to go in any other direction. And so this is a, a kind of a spiritual, it's a physical example of a spiritual reality. God says, don't do this because I want you to be focused on the only blood that you're to be ingesting in your body is my blood. And we do that. We partake in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ on communion. Now, is it the real physical blood of Jesus Christ? No, and the church has debated this throughout the ages. But it is a symbol of that, which is a reality. When Jesus sat there with his disciples, the Passover, this is my blood, this is my body, that sign of the new covenant, that's the only blood we're to be, we're to be ingesting. I know it sounds weird. Another point that we can tell why this is for us is that, and not just a, a Jewish law, is when you get into Acts chapter, I think it was 16, where they had the Jerusalem councils. We had some new believers out there. New believers were hanging out, and uh, Paul and Barnabas brought them to the Lord, and they sent news back to the Jerusalem council. So Gentiles were being, had the Holy Spirit fall upon them. The, Gen, the, the Jewish council found out about them. Some people were telling them, hey, you had to be circumcised. They said, no, we don't. You know, there was an argument back and forth. The council finally said, they came up, they, they, they wrestled with it for a while, and they came back to him and said, well, this is what we feel is what the Holy Spirit said. It says, verse 29 of, uh, I think, Acts 16, it says, you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well avoiding these things. Farewell. <laughs> you know, and so that, that stay away from blood. Same goes for us. Stay away from anything that would in any way warp our understanding of the lifeblood, which, which ultimately points to the, the, the uh, blood of Christ. I'll pick up on that in a minute. But verse 5 says, And, and for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. That's strange. Animals will give an account for if, when they've killed human beings. And from each human being, too, I will demand an account for the life of another human being. Verse 6, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. And so now in this post-flood world, the world we live now, we live in now, uh, God has decreed capital punishment. Boy, how many of us have different opinions on that? Well, it's time to take our opinions and put them up against the Word of God. What does God say about it? And believe me, it's not a simple thing. But there are many views on capital punishment. The death penalty is what we're talking about. But biblically, if a person murders another person, and that is what we are talking about, 
that, that willful taking of another person, premeditatively taking another person's life, the Bible says that they are to die at the hands of other humans. That's a hard teaching, isn't it? God has delegated this authority to mankind. In its original language, the Bible makes a distinction between killing and murder, and this is where we don't have the distinction. There's a distinction between killing and murder with God. Not all killing is murder because there are cases where there is just cause for killing, self-defense, capital punishment with due process of law, killing in a just war. There are other instances where killing is accidental, and then we see in, even in the Jewish society, they had cities of refuge to where they would go to. This is killing. It's not murder. Now, the Bible also consistently teaches that the punishment of the guilty is the role of human government. Romans 13, read it. Verses 1 through 4. So as to restrain man's depravity. It also teaches that the, guilty, the guilt of unpunished uh, murder defiles a land. The guilt of unpunished murder defiles a land. Numbers 35, verses uh, 31 through 34. And as uh, Martin Luther said, God establishes government and gives it the sword to hold wantonness in check. I love that word. Lest violence and other sins proceed without limit. Obviously, the question is if government is corrupt or just. It's interesting, I was in a class once, and uh, I think, you know, our professor said, hey, I want you to go ahead and, from the Bible, I want you to uh, support capital punishment. You guys support it, you guys say no. You know, they divided us up, and so we each, you know, made our cases, and then to the, the case that said, you know, hey, we are, you are supporting capital punishment, it goes, okay, now you're in China. How do you feel about that? You know, and at the time there was a different, we didn't have all the stuff going on, but there was a, like, whoa, you know, you kind of start to rethink. So this isn't so cut and dry from a, a standard, you know, a, a situation to where you can just say, oh yeah, just kill them. But there has to be a just system, and there's great injustice going on. But what I see in our, in our culture is that, uh, Murderers, they last for years and years and years and years and years and years, and nothing ever happens. That's unjust. And that's a reflection upon us as a society. We have our morals messed up. We want to have mercy, and there's a time for mercy, and I believe there's a time for mercy. But when it comes to premeditative murder, the, 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 uh, the Bible is clear. Take that, wrestle with it, because each of us probably have a different opinion, and I, and I would want you to go ahead and, and pray about that. If you see it differently, obviously you can. But one of the, one of the questions, again, is, is, is the government corrupt or just? Is it a just system? Jesus was an example of an unjust execution. Our Lord and Savior was an example of an unjust execution from a worldly perspective. Was he not? Innocent. Obviously, that was the perspective, but from God's perspective, it was the sin of mankind that Jesus was being executed for. 
So that's a, that's a different example. But either way, ultimately, the, the teaching is that God has established government. Government will answer to God, and also anyone who murders someone else will give an account. So this is a, a difficult subject, I understand. But ultimately, all of mankind will give an account to God for murder. Verse 7, As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. So God says, hey, as for you, I want you to live. And then God said to Noah and his sons with him, now I will establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and I will give you every every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals and all those who came out of the ark with you, every living creature, I will establish my covenant with you. And here's what theologians call the Noahic covenant. It's a one-sided agreement. Covenants are one-sided agreements, which is obviously for Noah and his descendants after him. Who's that? Hello. (laughs) This is for you. (laughs) Verse 11b, here we are. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. There's the clarifier, right? Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between, the, between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds of the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters... Uh, become a flood to destroy all life. Verse 16, whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. And so God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I've established between me and all life on the earth. I think God repeats that several times. It'd be very disconcerting if I popped out of the, the ark and I saw rain clouds. You know? And so the covenant that God made of the earth was signified. It, it, the sign is a rainbow. And so when you see a rainbow, know that God is keeping his promise. It's not that God forgets, but it's from our perspective that we understand that he remembers us. He remembers what he said to us. The covenant is that he will not destroy the earth by global flood. And obviously there have been major floods all over the earth. How many of you have experienced floods? There's flooding in Calgary right now. They're pretty, pretty bad. There's flooding in the Philippines that I've seen and been a part of. I mean, it's just horrible. There's a lot of things. So obviously God is talking about a global flood to destroy all of mankind. Either we take him for his word that it was a global flood or we don't. Every time we see a rainbow, it's a sign from God. You know, I'm, I'm in just picking up on these, these things and I'm just saddened that such a sign of mercy has been taken to, you know, by various groups and various peoples from New Agers to the GLBT and all that stuff to be a symbol not of the mercy of God but as a banner for wickedness that brings the judgment of God. You know, the same thing with the sacredness of the blood of Christ and the glorification of vampires and all that stuff. You know, the enemy will always seek to warp God's message to man. God seeks to give messages, you know, about the blood of Christ and how that is totally defamed in our culture. And it's 
You know, we take it lightly, but God takes it seriously. The rainbow, what does that mean? What do you think of it when you see that rainbow now? Do you think of God's promise or do you think of other things? That is intentional. We have an enemy. The enemy will always seek to warp God's message to man to the point where it reflects the exact opposite. He'll take it and he'll move it from one direction to the other. Be vigilant, church. And now the closing, uh, of, of closing out the chapter, a sad ending to a great life. Verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. And these were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. And this is what we're leading up to. Noah, a man of the soil, he's a farmer, he proceeded to plant a vineyard. And when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Checking age group. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body, and their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. Verse 24, When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. And may Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. Noah's own sinfulness and shameful actions show the foolishness of drunkenness. Well, the proverb says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last bite, at last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. That's Proverbs 20, verse 1 and 23, 29 through 30. Now, wine in itself is not evil. It's actually through the Bible, there's nothing wrong with it. Deuteronomy uh, 25 and Corinthians 9 talks about fermentation being a natural process. There's beneficial things to it. We From Timothy, uh, we see in Judges and Psalms and Proverbs and other areas. It's a symbol of blessing. Wine is a symbol of blessing. Genesis 27 and 28. I'm sorry, 27, 28 through 37. Um, Proverbs 9, Isaiah 25, Matthew 26. It's a symbol of blessing. Jesus' first miracle turning water into wine, right? So it's not the wine, what's the problem? <coughs> not the internet, it's... <laughs> Hello. But drunkenness, I don't even have enough room to write how much the Bible talks about drunkenness and how it is a sin and how it has run lives and families through. Unfortunately, Noah, the great man of faith, was drunk, and his son, Ham, saw him uncovered in his tent. And that phrase, uncovered, who, you know, we don't really know exactly what that means. Obviously, naked. 
But that word naked often has the association with something sexual that happened. And, and that's in other verses, Leviticus 18 and, and so forth. So it may be that Noah was abused sexually by one of his relatives or something happened that wasn't right. That's one of the views. And it's repulsive, but it's not surprising. This could have happened. Many people who get drunk become victims of abuse. Here's some statistics. 75% of men and 55% of women involved in date rape situations were drinking or taking drugs before the attack. The FBI says 50% of all rapes involve alcohol. There are more costs to drunkenness. In the United States, 100,000 people die each year in alcohol-related deaths. While alcohol abuse costs the nation hundreds of billions of dollars each year, still, the average American television viewer sees 90,000 incidents of drinking on television by age 21 and 100,000 beer commercials by age 18. I mean, we are inundated with, with it, right? And so some think that the idea of, of Noah being drunk here, he was taken advantage of in a way by one of the sons. That's one of the views. Others think that the term saw his nakedness of his father means that, that Ham only, Ham's only sin here was seeing Noah's drunkenness, his uncovered state, and that he made fun of him for it, mocking him as a father and as a man of God. Either way, Ham is, is given a prophecy concerning the future of his son, Canaan, and his descendants. And we're almost done here, okay? Five more minutes. And it seems as though um, it was sexual abuse, but it might not have been conclusive. But Noah woke. He knew what his son had done to him. So that implies something. And then prophesied concerning Ham, the son of Canaan. And you would figure that Ham would be cursed, not his son, right? What's up with that? There might have been more to the story that we're not, we're not reading about. Or... Perhaps this was the punishment, knowing what would happen to his son. I don't know, that would be horrible if my son was going to live a life that was godless or in that, and then I was to know that as a punishment. But we can trust God is not punishing Canaan for the sin of his father. That would go against the justice of God. And so it talks about this prophecy, and we see that the Canaanites were always an issue against Israel. Um, Lastly, verse 28. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. And so this is ending that genealogy. The life of Noah, let it be a reminder to us all. For those who have walked in faith and steadfast obedience to the voice of the Lord, to continue to give sacrifices that are pleasing to the Lord, that cost us something in our, from a true heart of worship, that's what pleases the Lord. We are to be a living sacrifice. That we cannot ride yesterday's wave. We can't ride yesterday's wave. Our lives are not over till we breathe our last. Our last, you know, I mean, we can't ride on yesterday's victory. We need to continue to take ground in the new land that God has given us. How many of us are stagnant, are just stuck? Noah was a remarkable man who served God in his own generation, yet his last years do not seem to match the glory of his first. You older saints, don't give in. Press in. Don't give in. Press into the Lord. Till it's done. Keep going. The rest of us, don't be fooled by the tools of the wicked one. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Honor the lifeblood. You know, don't let Hollywood or these, you know, different things warp our minds. Don't allow the enemy to fool you into thinking that a rainbow is a sign for unity and sexual diversity. It mocks the very grace of God. Ephesians 6.10, and this is the verse that the Lord kind of just put on my heart for us as we enter our, our new land that God has placed in front of us to go take for his kingdom instead of being on the constant defense. Finally, Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and the, in, in his mighty power. Be strong in the Lord in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. God wants you to stand boldly in this world, to stand boldly, not in the strength of your flesh, but in the strength of his might and his power. Put on the armor, church. Kick off the flesh, the weights that tie us down. Put on Jesus Christ every single day. This week, God will provide opportunity for you to shine the truth of the gospel into someone's life in word and in deed. Do it in the power of his might. Be blessed. Sacrifice to him. Sacrifice your time. Sacrifice your resources, your car, whatever it is that God wants. It's his. Sacrifice for his kingdom. You are not making treasures on this earth, but you are laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust and these things cannot corrode it. Invest your lives in the kingdom of God this week. Amen? Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for your servant, Noah, who is faithful and who is the reason we are all in this room pretty much because of his obedience. And we ask, Lord, that because of our obedience to you, obviously your son is the reason why we're standing in this room. Uh, but we ask that through our obedience to you, our, our submission to you, and you working in and through your church, Lord, that many would stand in the future as brothers and sisters, that we pray for the next generation of Christians. We pray for the next generation of followers of Jesus Christ, that they would not be left out, but through your grace working through our lives, Lord, we would impact them for eternity. Lord, I pray for those who are in the boat right now and they feel like the, the trials are just pressing down on them. Lift their hearts, God. Encourage them and let them know Send out the dove in their hearts, Lord, just that the, the time of their trial is coming towards an end and that you will open the door when you want to open the door. Tell them, God, we pray that they'd be strengthened in their faith and they're resolved. And when that door opens up, Lord, that there would be worship in their hearts. God, we, we lift up our church to you. We thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for taking care of uh, the little kids in their classrooms today. We thank you for the barbecue next week. We thank you for the families that we have and the jobs that we have and the people we're able to interact with, even in our pain. 
We praise you and thank you you're with us. You have not forgotten us. And we love you, God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.